Before we get started with the story of this episode, it's worth taking a minute to introduce the native inhabitants of the region that's now Maryland. These were tribes who had been on the edge of the Powhatan Empire, and the 1630s found them in a rather unique situation. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvala, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. A lot of what we know about these tribes actually comes from early Virginia exploration. John Smith had first explored the future Maryland way back in 1608 on that trip with Moscow. Then John Pory, who had worked for Argall and Warwick and with Yardley, had explored the area about a decade later, and Thomas Savage had also lived there for a while. And there had also been some others who had ventured into the area over the years. Perhaps the most interestingly, one of the people who taught some of the Marylanders about the region was one of the Africans who had come to Virginia as an indentured servant. After his term ended, he'd gone to the northern tribes to learn their language and culture and do some trading, and by the time the Ark and Dove arrived, he was able to give the new settlers some pretty decent information. And of course, there were Fleet and Claiborne. The peoples of Maryland were a group of smaller tribes caught between two massive powers, right at the edge of both spheres of influence. Coming from the south, the Powhatan had conquered them, and coming from the north, there was a tribe called the Susquehannocks. Everyone pretty much gave the same description of the Susquehannocks, from Wahoon Seneca to John Smith to the African. They were physically huge, they spoke a completely different language, they wore completely different clothes, and they had tools unlike anyone else around them. They were fierce, they were terrifying, and they could muster at least 600 warriors. The Susquehannocks, it turns out, were the southernmost tribe of the Iroquois, or Five Tribes, Confederation. As the Powhatan power collapsed, the Susquehannocks started to expand. They ended up conquering the Massawomics, and when the Marylanders arrived, the little tribes of the northern Chesapeake were really feeling the pressure. Most importantly to our story, a tribe called the Yoamicos were trying to fight the Susquehannocks, and they were losing badly enough that they were preparing to leave the area. Others weren't necessarily in as severe a situation, but for them, the English could only help matters. There were Padawomics and Patuxents, and the strongest tribe in the region was the Pascatawe tribe. So, picking up at about where we left off last week, after their initial encounter, Leonard Calvert, the governor, left Father White and a group of settlers in St. Clement's with the Ark, while he sailed the Dove up the St. Mary's River with a group of people including Captain Fleet and Father Altum, to talk to the local tribes and explore the area. 
Calvert offered Fleet a portion of the Maryland beaver trade if he would serve the Lord Proprietor, Baltimore, and help establish the colony, and Fleet accepted the offer, and he began to show them around and to lead them to a perfect place for the Marylanders to establish their capital. First, they sailed to the heart of the Potomac tribe, which was ruled by a child whose uncle, Archibu, was acting as regent. They spoke to the uncle for a while, as Fleet translated, and Altum started to preach to them. He said that they had come neither to make war on them nor to do them any wrong, but to instruct them in Christianity, to acquaint them with the arts of civilized life, and to live with them like brothers. Archibu told them that they were very welcome, but Altum told Archibu that he didn't have time to enter on further discourse, but he would return to visit him again. And Archibu responded enthusiastically, It is good. We'll use one table. My people shall hunt for my brother, and all things shall be common between us. They left, and their next stop was Pascatawe. This time, though, they were confronted by a massive group of warriors, 500 by their estimation. Calvert signaled that his intentions were peaceful, and Fleet went ashore to invite the Werewanse to come aboard the Dove. He accepted the invitation, and Calvert explained that they were there to teach him a divine doctrine to lead him to heaven, but this time the reception was skeptical and reserved. The Werewanse responded that he wouldn't bid them go, nor would he bid them stay, but that he would use his own discretion. He did, however, entertain the settlers overnight in his own wigwam, and even gave Calvert his own bed for the night. And then he spent the next day guiding Calvert around the area. At the end of the visit, the Werewanse was ready to ally with the English, and Calvert was completely smitten with his new home. After leaving Pascatawe, Fleet guided them to a place that would be suitable for a capital city, and Calvert agreed that the location was perfect. This would be where they planted St. Mary's, the capital of Maryland. Back at St. Clement's, things were also going pretty well. Unfortunately, their shallop had overturned, and they lost most of the linen that they'd brought from England. But White and the other settlers had been busy felling trees, building a palisade, and assembling the barge that they had brought from England. And they had also been talking to the Indians in the area. They'd invited them to come aboard the ship, and they'd showed them around firing the cannon, and answering any questions they had. Questions like, where in the world did so large a tree grow from which so huge a ship could be hewn? And like Altum, White's openness and manner helped to convince the tribes that the Marylanders had good intentions and solidify peace between the two peoples. When the Dove returned, the other two ships joined it, and the colonists sailed up to the location of their new city. 
they met with the local Yoamicos and bought 30 miles of territory in exchange for hatchets, axes, hoes, and cloth. According to the terms of the agreement, they'd live in the huts with the Indians while they built their own town. The Yoamicos had already been planning to leave, so their arrangement worked for both groups, and as they finalized the purchase, the settlers fired salutes in honor of the occasion. And soon after they planted their settlement, Governor Harvey sailed up from Jamestown. Calvert threw a banquet on board the Ark in honor of the occasion, and he invited the Werewances of all the neighboring tribes. The Patuxent Werewance was particularly friendly, so Calvert gave him a place of honor at the table, seated between himself and Harvey. One of the Werewance's subjects was certain that this was a trap, but the Werewance convinced the man that he was in no danger and prevented him from sounding the alarm on shore. As the feast drew to a close, he stood and addressed the surrounding Indians, saying, I love the English so well that if they should go about to kill me and I had so much breath as to speak... I would command my people not to avenge my death, for I know that they would do no such thing except it were through my own fault. With such a smooth beginning, you can imagine how weird it was when suddenly the Indians became reserved and distant. Fleet confirmed that something was wrong when he told Calvert that William Claiborne had told the local tribes that the Marylanders were Spaniards and their secret enemies in an attempt to push the Indians to attack and eliminate the Marylanders. In response to this news, Calvert ordered the settlers to suspend all other works and focus on building a blockhouse for protection. He also ordered the colonists to keep acting normal until the suspicion passed. They were to remain ceaselessly friendly, convincing the locals of the sincerity of their conduct. Six weeks later, the blockhouse was completed, and the suspicions among the local tribes were starting to dissipate. Calvert then sent a message to Baltimore telling him what Fleet had said, and a complaint to Harvey, who ordered Claiborne not to leave Jamestown until the charges were investigated. So, The initial problem was smoothed over relatively easily, but the fundamental issue still remained. William Claiborne was dedicated to pushing the Marylanders out of the Chesapeake region. And though his first attempt was pretty trivial, Claiborne's efforts would be so long-lasting and so impactful that he really needs a proper introduction. Claiborne was a Puritan and the son of the mayor of King's Lynn, a town in Norfolk. His family had always been involved in trade, though not particularly successfully, so in 1621, William had sailed to Virginia, where he worked as a surveyor. By 1625, he had 1,100 acres of land a hefty salary of 60 pounds a year, and the political connections to become Secretary of State of the Colony. And in 1627, he'd gotten authority from Governor Yardley to sail and trade north and south of the Chesapeake. 
by 1634, he was easily one of the most successful people in Virginia, and he still had his Kent Island settlement, which he was operating for Clobbery and Company. Kent Island, however, was in a very murky legal area. On the one hand, the words Hactenus inculta, or hitherto uncultivated, were in the Maryland grant, which meant that there had been no intention to grant any land already occupied by English colonists to Lord Baltimore. So even if Maryland became its own colony, Claiborne could argue that he still had proprietary rights to Kent Island because the patent wasn't intended to override any previous land ownership. On the other hand, Claiborne had only inhabited the area 10 months before the patent's date, knowing that there was likely to be a patent in that area, and he didn't have any official ownership of the land he was living on. All he had was a trading permit. There was nothing legally official about his settlement of Kent Island. But, on the one hand, Claiborne had been trading in the area for several years, and the people living on Kent Island had political representation in the Virginia government, actually by a guy named Nicholas Martian, an ancestor of George Washington. Plus, Claiborne had a special license from the king for his trading activities, granting him the right to trade anywhere in North America which hadn't been granted exclusive trading privileges. But on the other hand, Claiborne's license for trading was under the privy seal of Scotland, not England, and England and Scotland were still separate countries, though with the same king, so it was essentially impossible to take the matter to court. And to make matters worse, these legal issues hadn't been settled by the confirmation of Baltimore's patent over Virginia opposition in 1633. In fact, Claiborne hadn't even brought up the issue until the original case was decided. He only began his petition after the decision against Virginia and just a few days before the Ark and Dove left England. He sent a petition with John Wollstoneholm and other colonists saying that they had settled the land at great expense and asking that Baltimore settle in some other place. But this was just a few days before the Ark and Dove were scheduled to leave, and Baltimore hadn't halted the very expensive mission, which he was personally financing, to deal with a strategically timed and likely frivolous lawsuit, though. He had stayed in England, but he had appointed his brother governor, ordered his brother not to get into a fight with Claiborne, and sent his colonists anyway. Baltimore's position was that he would allow Claiborne to trade as freely as any Marylander until the English courts dealt with the issue, and he could come to Maryland personally. And that brings us to the core of the issue, which is that Claiborne wasn't just fighting for his rights to trade. If he was, Baltimore's decision would actually have been to his advantage because he would have more trading privileges, trading for Maryland, than he would for the Crown Colony of Virginia. Claiborne, though, 
was fighting a deeply political battle, which fell along the same lines that the English Civil War would just a few years later. He was a Puritan and a member of a Puritan party in Virginia. He was fighting against Catholics and against people who supported a more traditional form of government. He would soon be a roundhead, and he was fighting against people who would soon be cavaliers. Kent Island was only part of a wider battle going on within Virginia, and that same fight would soon drag England into one of the bloodiest wars in its history. The Kent Island trading post wasn't even doing well. Clobbery and company had even stopped sending the post supplies and trading goods because they didn't feel that Claiborne had been sending them enough pelts or high enough quality pelts. There would be no reason to fight if the issue wasn't political. But it was. Claiborne was one of the leaders of a Puritan faction within the Virginia government. At the end of June, both Maryland and Virginia sent commissioners to investigate Fleet's claims that Claiborne had lied about the Marylanders to turn the Indians against them. Maryland sent George Calvert, the 21-year-old brother of the governor and lord proprietor, as well as Frederick Winter. Virginia, on the other hand, sent the leaders of Claiborne's faction. Captain Samuel Matthews, John, Udy, William Pierce, and Thomas Hinton. These people had been rising through the ranks in Virginia since George Calvert and Frederick Winter were children. They were older, they were more experienced, and they were more political. So they dominated the proceedings, and by the end of the investigation, they had found no evidence that Claiborne had done anything wrong. Then they pushed Winter and Calvert to sign a document which stated the results of the investigation, and they sent the document along with the Patuxent Werewanse to St. Mary's to inform the governor of the results. The Marylanders still weren't convinced, but they couldn't prove anything. There hadn't been a fair investigation, but there had been a clear change in the Indians, which wasn't otherwise explained. But the Virginians were able to use the results to claim that Claiborne had been the wronged party. They now said that Claiborne hadn't done anything wrong, and that he was a victim who had been falsely accused for the personal profit of Captain Fleet, who was his long-term trading rival. Fleet had cast his lot in with the Marylanders to boost his own business, and he was sabotaging Claiborne. So the investigation put people even more on edge than they had been before. But for the rest of the summer, everything was pretty peaceful. The Indians taught the settlers how to hunt the different types of game which were native to Maryland, and the colonists discovered that the rivers and bays were full of fish and oysters. The Indians taught the settlers how to work the land, and the settlers planted lots of corn before moving on to building their city. They lived in their huts as they built their town, and the priests lost no time in turning one hut into a chapel. And they also continued discussing religion with the locals, not just talking at them, but also learning about their own beliefs, 
with a detail that was never before understood. White helped to document these beliefs. The local tribes had a somewhat similar tradition to the Powhatan. They did believe in one supreme god, but many minor deities, and they spent most of their time trying to appease the evil spirit, Oki, using sacrifices. And as they discussed religion with the locals, and as they explained Christianity, they converted more and more of them. The priests were forbidden from visiting the tribes of the interior because the colony couldn't afford to lose them until they had reinforcements, but they had plenty of work to do around St. Mary's and St. Clement's. In addition to conversions and performing the sacraments, White kept meticulous journals which he used to send detailed reports back to England and to Rome. And in England... Baltimore used the reports to recruit more and more settlers for the colony, though he kept White's identity a secret. The Marylanders had brought enough supplies from England and Barbados to get them through the growing season, and by fall, they had enough corn not only to feed the settlement through the next year, but also to trade 10,000 bushels to New England in exchange for salt and other provisions. The transaction didn't go smoothly, though. The New Englanders were offended that the Catholics called them Holy Brethren, and the Dove's crew members evidently used profanity. The leading merchant ended up being arrested for a week in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts asked him to punish the offenders on board his ship. He died a week after being released, though, before the pinnace had even left Plymouth. His death wasn't the result of mistreatment, despite the timing. Marylanders, like Virginians, had suffered a huge rate of what the Virginians called seasoning sickness since arriving in the Chesapeake. It was the same sickness, and it left people permanently weak and prone to residual bouts of illness. So these people were already in pretty rough shape when they arrived. But all in all, Things were going really well. The Claiborne issue wasn't settled, though. Governor Calvert was under orders from his brother to ask for a meeting with Claiborne and at the meeting to assure Claiborne of Maryland's good intentions toward him. He was supposed to send a Protestant gentleman to invite him, and so Calvert sent Thomas Young. When Young returned from delivering the invitation, though, he expressed deep reservations about the possibility of peace with Claiborne. He said that Claiborne spoke subtly, but was clearly, deeply, and bitterly opposed to Baltimore. And he also explained the factional politics that were supporting Claiborne in Virginia, as well as identifying the leaders of that faction. Claiborne had evidently told Young that he had hoped for a peaceful existence with the Marylanders until he had been falsely accused of trying to turn the Indians against them. But now that Maryland had put out those accusations, he had changed his mind and would not cooperate with them. Young told Calvert and Baltimore that unless they suppressed the leader of Claiborne's faction quickly, they would end up with a long political battle with daily plots and subterfuge. 
Without the factions agitation, though, the problem would go away. The problem is, neither Calvert, nor Baltimore, nor even Governor Harvey was in the position, or was strong enough, to suppress this faction. Claiborne had agreed to the meeting, though, and a few days later he met with Governor Calvert. Baltimore had strictly ordered his brother to keep the meeting cordial and not to confront Claiborne on the legal issues, but somehow this order got disobeyed and Calvert ended up telling Claiborne that if he remained in Maryland, he would be deemed a subject of the colony. Claiborne had agreed to the meeting, though, and a few days later, the meeting happened. Baltimore had strictly ordered his brother to keep the proceedings cordial, and not to confront Claiborne on the legal issues. Somehow, this order got disobeyed, and Calvert ended up telling Claiborne that if he remained in Maryland, he would be deemed a subject of the colony. Now, we don't know exactly how that ended up happening. It's pretty clear from later interactions that Leonard Calvert wasn't quite as mild-mannered as his brother, But it's also pretty clear from the whole situation that Claiborne was actively hoping to cause problems for Maryland, and that he was pretty smart and pretty quick. But regardless of how exactly Calvert ended up making that blunder, he made Maryland the topic of discussion at the next Virginia Council meeting just a few days later. Claiborne asked the rest of the councillors if he should demean himself in respect of Baltimore's patent, and the overwhelming majority of the councillors answered that Virginia was bound in duty and oaths to maintain the rights and privileges of its colonists, and they saw no reason to give up Kent Island to Maryland. They supported Claiborne's refusal to consider himself part of Maryland or to halt his right to trade in Maryland's waters without license from Baltimore. And they did say that Virginia would maintain peace with Maryland, but they gave their official and unequivocal support to Claiborne's actions. And that meeting brings our story through the end of 1634. And the Maryland colonists began the next year with the first meeting of the colony's General Assembly, where they passed a few laws which they sent to Baltimore for his approval and elected Hawley and Cornwallis as the colony's first two commissioners. In March, though, both Claiborne and Calvert got orders from England regarding Kent Island. In response to Fleet's accusations, Baltimore ordered his brother to take possession of Kent Island if possible, and to take Claiborne and his settlers prisoner until further orders. At the same time, Clavery and Company had sent orders to Claiborne to continue his trading, saying that the king had assured them of their continued rights to the island. A third letter to Harvey from the Privy Council thanked the Virginia governor for his service to Maryland. So everyone had gotten different messages. And in fact, everyone had gotten messages telling them exactly what they wanted to hear. After a year of hostility, Calvert was ready to push Claiborne out for good. And Claiborne was happy to continue his activities in a more and more aggressive way. So just a couple weeks later, 
claiborne-scented pinnace called the Longtail to trade for corn and furs in Maryland waters. Under the command of Thomas Smith, the Longtail sailed well past Kent Island, up the Patuxent River, and very close to St. Mary's. Calvert sent Captains Fleet and Humber to seize the Longtail for trading in Maryland waters without a license from the Lord Proprietary. When they confronted him, Smith showed the Marylanders copies of his commission, as well as the letter from Clobbery and Company, but Fleet noted that the commission didn't allow them to trade further than Kent Island, and he said that the papers had been grounded on false information that Claiborne had sent to England. So, despite their objections, Fleet seized the vessel and confiscated the goods. He put the crew on shore, unarmed, and that night they slept in the woods, walking to St. Mary's the next day. At St. Mary's, they complained to Cornwallis, who was in charge of the colony while Calvert was visiting Virginia, saying that Fleet's actions had been illegal. But Cornwallis responded that Fleet hadn't done anything that he hadn't been ordered to do. But Cornwallis responded that Fleet had been acting under orders. Two days later, Calvert returned from Virginia and met with Smith, and he too refused to return the vessel. He also refused to return them to Kent Island, offering instead to send them to Virginia or England. Smith refused the offer and asked for a boat with which to return home. Instead, Calvert allowed Smith to make arrangements with local Indians for transportation to Virginia, and he allowed them one gun. In response to this incident, Claiborne sent an armed vessel called the Cockatrice to demand the return of the Longtail and to seize and capture any pinnaces that it found belonging to the Marylanders. Calvert also outfitted a couple of pinnaces in anticipation. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter. And you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to firsthand accounts and things. See you next week. <laughs>